traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It used to be so simple. Buy a cheap plane ticket, throw a toothbrush and a change of clothes in a wheelie bag, grab your passport, and off you go. Globetrotting had never been easier. Then came COVID-19. You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog with something a little different for you. A glimpse into the future of travel and tourism. And I thought that that crisis was going to be the worst experience in my life and how wrong I was. I think it's a very exciting period of time. Certainly the most exciting era in my 25 or 30 years in this business. It's had to take on an extra $220 billion of debt. And that's going to be a real problem. For a fast-growing market like China, we can definitely outgrow that. If you're thinking normal of what we had in 2019, we're not going back there. I think what we are going is forward. Our industry editor, Simon Wright, has written a special report on the subject in this week's issue of The Economist. And he'll be your tour guide to the age of the wheelie bag. If you want to get a sense of how international travel has changed, just think about luggage. In the 15th century, the age of discovery, explorers set sail in ships packed to the gunnels with supplies. They'd be away for years. The grand tourists, the sort of the, the noblemen in the uh, 18th century who travelled around Europe, they were the sort of forerunners of the modern tourists. They'd pack belongings in trunks, they'd take servants with them, they might even bring their own furniture. Then we come to the sort of turn of the 20th century, when the suitcase was the method of carting your belongings around. The very wealthy would spend a few weeks away somewhere nice. The wheelie bag, though, I think comes to symbolise the sort of the ease and cheapness of modern travel. Mass travel in the rich world is still a relatively um, new phenomenon. In 1950, only about 25 million trips abroad took place. By 2019, that was 1.5 billion. But then, of course, the pandemic arrived and that brought international travel close to a standstill. Stay-at-home orders and bans for non-essential travel have kept people in their homes. Train stations, airports in the United Kingdom packed with people over the weekend trying to get out. Across the country, tough new border restrictions come into effect. The reality is that we were not prepared for this outbreak. Gloria Guevara is president of the World Travel and Tourism Council that represents this global industry. It has been very difficult. I have to tell you, I was Minister of Tourism for Mexico. It was what it was called back then, the perfect storm, because we had the H1N1 after the impact of the financial crisis and after the security situation. So we lost like 5 million travelers in a short time frame. It was declining. And I thought that that crisis was the worst and that was going to be the worst experience in my life and how wrong I was. Of course, last year we did an analysis and the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that around 40, 50 million jobs were going to be impacted. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. 
By the end of 2020, that number was increased to almost 174 million jobs impacted globally. Travel and tourism is seriously big business. If you include domestic tourism, the World Travel and Tourism Council estimates that 330 million jobs depend on it, which is 1 in 10 globally. According to the World Trade Organization, international travel made up 6.5% of global exports. And the spending by international travelers hit something like $1.5 trillion in 2019. So there are big numbers involved. There is no country in the world that has not benefited from travel and tourism. Okay, no country in the world. Travel and tourism has a social impact that people need to understand. It's not only the economic impact, the 330 million jobs around the world. On top of that, you have the 54% of all those jobs are women, 54%, 30% are youth. And then when you look at countries that they have nothing else, that they might not have oil or agriculture, you know, but they have great natural assets, Travel tourism is the only way for them to reduce poverty and to provide opportunities. The social impact is unique. I don't see that in any other sector. The rise of the wheelie bag reflects the falling costs and increasing speed of long distance travel. Travel used to be slow, difficult and expensive. If you relied on a sailing ship or a horse-drawn carriage, you know, it took ages to get anywhere. The Earl of Salisbury, one of the grand tourists, spent nearly half a million pounds in today's money on his grand tour, so travel was incredibly expensive, only really available to the very few. On their way to points all over the globe, more than 200,000 sky travelers have passed through here. The big surge in international travel came when air travel became much more widespread, beginning in about the 1950s. Today, that same Atlantic air ocean, leaving Columbus two months and Lindbergh's 33 hours in its wake, zooms by in a dramatic breakthrough. But even 50 years ago, foreign travel was a luxury pursuit. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard the spacious cabin. Attractively decorated, air-conditioned, but draft-free. Even by 1970, a return flight from New York to London cost around $500, the equivalent of $3,500 today. To Europe, Canada, the Bahamas, Bermuda, the Caribbean, and to more than 80 cities in the USA. A new term is coined to refer to those who are privileged enough to travel on these new commercial airliners. The jet set. The real game changer was lower airfares. Wherever you're going to, make sure you go to Thomas Cook first. Because we've cut the brochure price of over a million holidays from leading tour operators. First with charter flights and package holidays. Then, around the 1980s, low-cost carriers started to bloom. Oh, good grief. Haven't you got anything better to spend your money on? EasyJet, London Luton. Then the internet made holidays even easier and cheaper to arrange. According to the UN's World Tourism Organization, in 2019, nearly three-fifths of international travelers arrived and departed by plane. But just as cheap flights, more than any other mode of transport, enabled the age of the wheelie bag, it's also air travel that's now been hit the hardest. In 2020, international air travel was down by 75%. My name is Brian Pierce. I'm a chief economist at the International Air Transport Association. We're the industry's trade association, but also manage much of the airline industry's money between travel agents and the airlines. And we're a standard setter as well. In fact, those annual numbers sort of hide the worst point. You know, in, in April, which was the low point, you know, there was virtually no travel at all, perhaps 2% 
of the normal international air travel taking place. And we've still got air travel probably around 70% down on pre-crisis levels. 9-11 was the worst shock prior to this one, and we saw the industry losing $13 billion. Last year, we reckon it was almost $120 billion. So for an $800 billion industry, that's a huge amount. It's had to take on an extra $220 billion of debt. And that's going to be a real problem. There's one area of air travel that has been particularly hard hit, and it may not ever bounce back completely, business travel. Interestingly, cargo is filling that gap of the higher yielding business traveller at the moment. But I think that's a temporary filler. It's really only making some long haul services viable, cash positive, because at the moment there's actually a real shortage of cargo capacity. But once the passenger fleet gets back into the air and provides the extra capacity to carry cargo in in the belly capacity, cargo won't be a long-term replacement to, to business travel. Business travel has a huge impact on legacy airlines, those airlines that have been around for years that were formerly state-owned monopolies. They particularly rely on business travellers for profits. One rule of thumb is that business fares are 10% of tickets, 40% of revenues, but could be up to 80% of their profits. You know, this has left the airline industry in a very parlous state. Um, It's being kept on life support by government aid and also accumulating debt by borrowing from capital markets. I think it's a very exciting period of time. Certainly the most exciting era in my 25 or 30 years in this business. Michael O'Leary is the outspoken boss of Ryanair, Europe's largest airline. Low-cost carriers with strong balance sheets are spotting opportunities among the ashes. Think Ryanair and Wizz Air in Europe, Southwest in America and Malaysia's Air Asia. And now clearly we wish the pandemic hadn't happened, but these crises, whether it was 9-11, the Gulf War, now the COVID pandemic has you know, presented an extraordinary opportunity to reduce costs. It has freed up slots at airports that ultimately would have been closed to us. It's created, I think, a real pressure on Europe's airports, who are many of whom are now negotiating with us to get, secure some of our new aircraft because they want to make up the traffic that they've lost and will never see again. In December, Ryanair confirmed an order for another 75 Boeing 737 Maxes, taking its total to 210 new planes over the next four years. As long as you had enough cash and a strong balance sheet as Ryanair did, there have been opportunities during this period to restructure labour costs, restructure airport costs, restructure aircraft costs, and really set a new base for growth for the next four or five years. Although legacy airlines are suffering, they're probably not going to go under. Governments around the world are pouring billions in subsidies into their airlines. Nous sommes décidés à soutenir Air France et à continuer à soutenir Air France. Bruno Le Maire, France's finance minister, promised to do whatever is necessary to guarantee the survival of Air France. We have no money. Germany's Lufthansa has had a bumper aid package. America's airlines have benefited handsomely. Remember, this is the $25 billion that was set aside in the CARES Act. All this state aid could lead to governments having more control over airlines again. And that's likely to give low-cost carriers an advantage. Here's Michael O'Leary again. State aid is disappointing because it will completely distort competition. They can engage in below-cost pricing for the next four or five years with those kind of subsidies. But ultimately, it means that they haven't reformed their cost base. They haven't tackled their high labour costs, their inefficient labour practices. So 
Over the medium term, I still think it, it, the state aid has massively widened the gap between those legacy airlines and Ryanair. It's the cost gap uh, that was ultimately secure Ryanair's future success. Well, I mean, we have seen some airline failures in the UK. Flybe was an early casualty. Brian Pierce of IATA. In Latin America, we've seen LATAM being restructured under bankruptcy protection. But there's only been about 40 or so airlines that have failed, which is actually a normal year for the industry. And the, the reason is the governments have recognised that air transport is a really strategic sector for the economic recovery. Air transport keeps supply chains going. You know, it carries a third of international trade. So governments have provided about $200 billion of aid. Now, that's got an implication for the industry as we come into recovery in more normal circumstances, because you, know, you should see consolidation. That would help the recovery of the, the strongest survivors. So I think actually, you know, this is going to delay what's probably a necessary consolidation of the sector by several years. The future is, is still that air transport is going to be cheap for both passengers and shippers in the cargo business. You know, we've seen the real cost of flying come down by half over the last 20 years. And although the difficulties of operating in this environment has, has added extra costs to airlines, I think it's sort of quite difficult to see that being fully passed through to the passenger particularly as, you know, if governments are going to be keeping weaker airlines alive in order to protect taxpayers' money, you know, there's going to be plenty of capacity out there chasing a relatively slowly recovering demand. Coming up, is technology the solution to getting people moving again? And how this shock to the system may change tourism for the better? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. So what's stopping people moving across borders? Of course, the first consideration is safety. Although as far as the available data show, planes seem relatively safe in terms of COVID-19 transmission. Here's Brian Pierce, Chief Economist at IATA. While there are no peer-reviewed studies at the moment, we've conducted in the industry a study recording the number of detected coronavirus cases of onboard transmission. And there have only been about 50 over the past uh, year. That translates through to a risk of transmission of one in 27 million passengers. Um, and if we assume that perhaps 90% of cases are, are actually not being recorded, that's still only a risk of transmission of one in 2.7 million. Well, as Andrew Charlton, an analyst of the airline industry, told me, people are not scared of flying, they're scared of arriving. What's really stopping people is travel bans, which are still in place in many countries around the world, but also the mishmash of rules for getting across borders, which include things like pre-flight testing, but also quarantines. A 10-day quarantine is almost as good as a travel ban. We're quite optimistic that if passengers can travel, they will. 
You know, one example is the full recovery that we've seen in the Chinese domestic air travel market. And you know, we've seen similar recoveries in the Russian and some other Asian markets. Based on what we know today about the vaccine rollouts, we think that the second half of this year should feel very much better and we should see passenger numbers could get back to pre-crisis levels by 2023. One of the biggest challenges now is for immigration authorities and airlines and also passengers to have proof that vaccines and testing has taken place properly. One answer could be technology that would help governments and airlines get people back in the air and allow them to cross international borders again without quarantines. So IATA has been working on travel pass. We're expecting that this will all be integrated in the standard apps, travel apps or airline apps that passengers use. And essentially what it does is it gives a digital registry to allow immigration authorities and passengers to know that the certificates for testing or vaccination are genuine. And it matches that with a digital passport. And so you know, this should allow contactless travel. It should give governments the confidence to remove any restrictions on these passengers. I think the health apps are crucial to resume international travel. And why is that? Gloria Guevara of the World Travel and Tourism Council is optimistic about the role digital health apps can play. Closing borders is not the solution, right? And the other thing that we have been against is using the vaccination as a requirement to travel. There are a lot of countries that they don't even have vaccines available. That's going to be driving more inequality and that's going to drive discrimination. But she notes that IATA isn't the only organisation that has been developing a one-stop tech fix for mobility and the proliferation of these apps creates further problems. Now, what's very important is the interoperability of all these apps, and we are working on that. There are a lot of apps out there, the Common Pass, AOK Pass, the IATA Pass, the IBM Pass, CETA Pass. We have a lot of apps out there that we need to make sure that they connect to each other and we make it easier. But the apps are crucial, are very important, because that allow you to prove that you don't have COVID and you can move around. In countries where they have already a health pass, they have been able to move and, and resume the mobility internally and domestic and recover faster. One country that has made rigorous use of apps and contact tracing to reopen its domestic market almost entirely is China, the biggest single travel market in the world. It's actually a pleasant surprise for me. You know, I traveled quite extensive last year domestically, which I would not have this opportunity, you know, <laughs> without COVID. My name is James, James Liang. I'm the chairman and co-founder of Trip.com. Uh, Trip.com is the leading online travel agency in China. And also we have a very significant presence outside of China too. Uh, we are uh, the controlling shareholder of the leading meta search engine, Skyscanner. And also we are the largest hotel and flight travel agency in Asia. Recently, the situation is uh, very well under control and uh, started to recover from you know 50 60 percent to 60 70 percent now and looking ahead we are optimistic that going to you know the high season of spring and summer travel at least for domestic travel china will have a you know, very strong recovery 
Of course, business travel is still a smaller part of the overall travel market. Business travel may be only 30% of overall travel market. Uh, you know, even a 30% reduction in business travel is only a, a 9% reduction of the overall market. For a fast-growing market like China, we can definitely outgrow that from the leisure market increase. So, so when you have more leisure travel, domestic travel or regional travel will probably have higher share, because the COVID has lasted for about two years. So, staycation type of hotels are doing well, and more and more money, more and more investments will go into those type of hotels. So, I think in the post-COVID era, short-distance travel resort hotels will have a higher growth than the overall travel industry or than the flight industry. In fact, the Chinese tourists have been you know, experiencing you know, China. There's a you know a period of year that uh, high-end customers, you know, normally they would travel high-end international destinations. Now they chose to travel domestically, so they actually they had a good experience or good taste of other domestic products. Obviously, international travel, the demand is still there. I think they will have a very strong recovery because just the pent-up demand for international travel once the restriction is removed. But we're talking about 12 months, at least 12 months from now. It's a very interesting saying when we say back to normal, right? Because if you're thinking normal of what we had in 2019, we're not going back there. I think what we are going is forward. The destinations that they didn't appreciate the, the sector, now they suddenly see how important it is because of the job losses, massive job losses that they are having. However, for destinations that they were complaining for the volume of travelers that they had, that they don't have right now, and they lost that income, now it has allowed them to say, wait a minute, we need to make sure that we get this right moving forward. The digital agenda, for instance, has been accelerated. So you will see more the use of biometrics, the, the use of applications to be touchless, seamless experience. I have seen destinations that they are using more data, AI, understanding more the preference of the travelers. But not only that, your itinerary might be available based in, in what is available. So instead of having overcrowding in destinations like Barcelona, for instance, or Tokyo, Paris, or here in London and many others. Now you would have an itinerary that allows to move people around the, the, the destination in a more effective way. So we need to make sure that we rebuild better. You see that the experience is going to be better, nicer, more sustainable, more digital, and also maximize the experience and the benefit. The pandemic has damaged international travel enormously. It could take three to four years to resume its path of growth, but it's also given the chance to reset. Airbus and Boeing unveiled plans for zero emission or much lower emission flying. One of the big problems with international travel is carbon emissions. These only represent two to 3% of global carbon emissions at the moment, but they're growing and there's really no substitute for flying if you want to travel around the world. And this is important because there's huge scope for international travel to grow. As airline and aerospace company executives will tell you, 80% of the world has never set foot on a plane. And the basic forces driving international travel, growing wealth and leisure time, are all there. And in order for this growth of international travel to be accommodated, the whole business does really need to rethink how it operates. 
Today's travel industry may have taken a battering, but the new one that emerges could be better than ever. The age of the wheelie bag is far from over. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. And our thanks to Gloria Guevara, Michael O'Leary, James Liang, Brian Pierce, and Simon Wright. The producer was Amika Shortino Nolan. This was really only a day trip into the future of travel and tourism. For the full tour, Simon's special report is live at economist.com, including an exploration of a possible green revolution in air travel and a deep dive into how biometrics could make your next trip both safer and smoother. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer, and the link is in the notes for this episode. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist.